vintage sand. Hello, hello, hello. Here we are. It's this, we're still in quarantine. We're still locked away with nothing to do but watch movies. You'd think it would be heaven, but actually it has. Well, John got a haircut. Good for it you. Would be that, it John. would be our choice anyway, so. Yeah, exactly. So no big change for us. I think we've adapted very well to the, to the quarantine. So, yeah. John at least went out and got a haircut. I'm proud of him. But yes, it is. And I admit, I must admit that when I went, and I was only there for maybe at the most 40 minutes, I was terrified the entire yeah. time. The hell out I had of my there. mask on, he had a mask on, and also he told me about the fact that he gets tested regularly because he has diabetes. Oh, oh dear. Thank you. Uh, all right. So, uh, battered but, un but unbroken, we are Team Vintage Sand. Uh, Michael Edmund, John Meyer, and your humble narrator, Josh Cabot. Um, and for our 22nd episode, my God, it's been an epic run, hasn't it? I thought we were going to close in Philadelphia, and yet here we are. <laughs> and uh, You just never know what the public likes. And it's not a coincidence that our very first episode, way back, I believe it was in April of 18, was called Hitchcock Obscura, where we talked about our favorite um, obscure Hitchcock films, if there is such a thing, someone who studied maybe more than any other director. And I recall that Michael settled on stage fright um, with its uh, lying flashback, which I love, and John settled on The Wrong Man, which is his unsettling as a, a film as you'll ever see and I settled on uh, I Confess. And then in episode five, we return to Hitchcock uh, for our favorite Hitchcock moments. You should, uh, no need to recap here, but you should definitely go back and listen to episode five. It's worthwhile. And we've wandered and we've strayed and we've gone hither, thither and yon and all the way back and all the way forward. And now here we are and we find ourselves in episode 22, back to Hitchcock, for an episode that we've been threatening to do for a long time, right, fellas? <laughs> it's our, we, I think we threatened this back in episode five. It's uh, our episode on our favorite Hitchcock villains. And there's definitely a type to that. Um, how would you, what would you, how would you describe, and there are always exceptions, of course, how would you yes. guys describe the typical Hitchcock? And some of my favorite are exceptions, but uh, yes. the, the quintessential, Hitchcock villain is this suave, smooth, very cultured man who can be very, very charming, but will will do what's villainous to get what he wants. Right, and it's not like a, you know it. I, I've often compared Hitchcock to James Bond in saying that often the films will rise and fall based upon how good their villain is, and I don't know if that's really necessarily true. Looking at all of Hitchcock's career, but um, you know, there, there's never any gleeful hand rubbing global domination. No, not at all. You know, no. You know, white cat in the lap, Ernst Stavro Blofeld kind of thing. Um, it's but no, they're always real. they're always very real. Well, and because, and we talked in an earlier episode about the whole MacGuffin idea, and the fact is that in, in the Bond films, the MacGuffin is shown all the time. We've got to stop this nuclear bomb before it explodes or before Goldfinger makes all the gold in Fort Knox radioactive or whatever. And it's usually the same bomb. Yes, and it's that, <laughs> they keep reusing that same, saves on prop money. And, same bomb. Um, and with Hitchcock, it, it, it's never what's had, like, for example, think about, you know, uh, the, one of the best fits for your description, John, is James Mason as Van Damme in, uh, in North yeah, by Northwest. Yeah. And, you know, we never really find out what 
the big, there's a secret, there's a microfilm, it's in a stat, you know, yeah. but we don't even know what's on the microfilm. James, that's an interesting one. To, uh, that's one of my favorites, uh, partly because James Mason, even though he's not, he's only in the movie in key moments, he's really excellent. He's so suave and, and you, def, you get the sense of a very cultured man with varied interests, some of the references he throws out, but at the same time, he just turns completely evil in a moment. I mean, yeah. the, the last part when he finds out about Eva Marie saying that the, the quote he has, he says, and Leonard says, you're not taking her on the plane, will you? Oh, he, right. he, says, he says, of course I am. Like our friends, I too believe in neatness, Leonard. This matter is best disposed of from a great height over water. <laughs> exactly. Whoa. And <laughs> it's like, oh my God. And I love the, you know, the sort of openly gay subtext for 1959. They give Hitchcock yeah. and Bruce Lehman credit yes. for that. Well, actually, it was Martin, uh, Martin Landau claims it was his idea, that it was not in the original script. I, I, I believe that. And, you know, and, you know, there's, he's, he's, there are very few interesting henchmen, whereas Bond, there's always yeah. henchmen to get rid of. But, yeah. Martin and also, and supposedly, according to, I think, kind of one of the biographies I read, the whole thing where Mason slugs Landau. And, and you look at that, and he looks, it's the one time where his veneer is gone. Yes. He's really mad. And that was supposedly Mason's idea. Really? To hit him. Because none of that was in the original Ernest Leeham Hitchcock script. Interesting. Yeah, the, the gay stuff. Not only that, but I think the reason he's so mad isn't because he cares about the Ivory Singh character. He's insulted because what Leonard is saying to you, you're a dumbass. Yeah, you're a dumbass. And I also suspect that he knows that Leonard has a, a thing for him. And that also probably freaks yeah. him out. Well, yeah. it is amazing thinking Mason was a big star at this time. And he has top billing. And he's only in the movie 16 minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. very, very, very I mean, his, moments are, his moments are very memorable, but he's not in it that much. I mean, the first 90 minutes, he's in it for four. The, the brief scene in the beginning, and then he doesn't yeah. pop up really until the uh, uh, auction. He's got like 30 no, seconds. It, it, oh, it I love like, that scene. I love that moment. I love the auction scene. It, it feels like a part that could have been played by anybody, but the fact that Mason, Mason is the one who brings some life to it. Absolutely. He makes, he makes that yeah. character interesting. A lesser actor could have served the part fine and moved the plot forward, but we're interested in Van Damme because of Mason. I cannot imagine another actor in that part, but then I can't imagine anybody else in that. I mean, to me, North by Northwest is such a perfect movie. Uh, and you, you know, it's also the longest running time of any Hitchcock movie. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not at quite as big a fan of it as you guys are. But to me, it's a series of really unbelievable set pieces looking for a movie. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I it definitely has emotion. I mean, a geographic motion, as in the title, and um, and and you know, there's no let up in between, but. Uh, you know, there are so many great scenes, but it doesn't have a flow to me of something like Vertigo or Rear Window or Strangers on a Train. Well, the, the flow, the real, I mean, the real flow, the theme is about breaking down the Cary Grant character. I mean, it's basically trial by fire. Right. You put him through all these different trials and he eventually becomes a more authentic person by the end. 
And I have to say, you know, and in even the uh, the climactic scene at the uh, at, at uh, Mount Rushmore, you know, I was like, okay, but now he's starting to rob his own bag of tricks because he hung Norman Lloyd off the Statue of Liberty in Saboteur back. In oh. I well, mean, you could say I, that you could say that about Hitchcock in all, in all his movies. He always yeah. sort of borrowed from himself a little bit. Well, uh, but then after North by Northwest goes into completely different territory with Cycle and Birds. Yeah. And you know, Vertigo was not like anything, and neither was Rear, Rear Window in some ways. But yeah, I, I, if, if it was derivative, it was only derivative of himself, and you can't penalize yeah. someone for that. No, I, I never, I never even thought of the North by Northwest as being derivative. I mean, as I said, it, I, I just think, and it was, I think it was Hitchcock's biggest financial success. Up Absolutely, to point, very up to that and, point. I think Psycho actually wound up making more money, and certainly more profit. Psycho must have cost yeah. a lot less. To well, shoot. that's it. Yeah, that's that's also. But um, I'm, I'm, you know, the color is beautiful, and the Herman music is great, and the Saul Bass titles. I mean, everything. All cylinders are firing in North by Northwest. Oh yeah. You know, oh yes, it's a really beautiful, very like ah, high tech, big production. And then and then the thing, the contrast of going to Psycho, which is such a minimalist, small movie that he shot in like in about a month with a TV right, with crew. TV crew. Yep. Yeah. And so part of I'm, the reason he did that was because Hitchcock wanted to say, like, you know, you can make a good movie for cheap. Yeah. All these big productions are coming out. They're not very good. I mean, and the thing, the, when I walk away from North by Northwest, as much as I love James Mason, the thing I love most about the film is Eve Marie Singh. I mean, she's wonderful. She is absolutely, Michael. It's, I, I, it's my favorite Eve Marie Singh performance. She is just, per, every minute of hers is believable. Yeah. And Cary Grant is playing Cary Grant brilliantly. Yeah, well, I yes. tell people if they want to see one perfect Cary Grant performance where he shows all facets of a Cary Grant character, that's the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so Mason is a great place to start with North by Northwest. Let's move a little bit into, we're not doing our usual, you know, top five list because we didn't feel that really applied here. How about your, your great villains who are a little bit or a whole bunch deranged or, you know, out of their senses? And we're holding off on Norman Bates. That's going to be our exit question. Well, because, see, I, well, uh, right? I would, uh, deranged, I would go Bruno Antonin. Ab. So, lutely, who is, I mean, I think I, I'm going to guess that we all, if we did make a list, we'd all have the same number one, but Bruno is my second. No, 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 you'd be surprised at my number one. Interesting, I, okay. I have a <laughs> feeling I know who, you, who your number one would be. I, I think I know who your number one is too, but I'm going to hold off and, and okay. hold up on that for a minute. But the, and the one that sort of fits in with Bruno is Uncle Charlie is Joseph Cotton's performance in Shadow of the It's Death. really interesting because I know you like Strangers on a Train a lot. I'm not crazy about it, mainly because of Farley Granger. I think he really hurts the movie. <laughs> I but, agree. But, but the thing is that more so than most Hitchcock movies, the villain, Robert Walker, I mean, he doesn't just steal the movie. He puts it in his pocket and walks away. Yeah, it's his movie. He, it is absolutely. It, it really is. It is definitely his movie, and he's excellent in it. You shouldn't have done that, guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But some of, the, some of the moments, too, but, like, for example, when you see, first of all, there's that murder, that great murder scene, the, the, oh, the shot of the glasses, and, oh, God, that's so good. But then, like, the, 
when you see him and he does a little thing where he pops the kid's balloon and then you see him oh, walk the blind person across the street. And it's like, no, and, and when he- there's, reenacts, no, there's no conscience at all. When he reenacts the murder with his, you know, with the judge's wife and then looks yeah. up and sees Pat Hitchcock and sees, sees Babs and, you know, before he realizes what he's doing has, is right. to actually strangle her. Right. Well, and of course, it, you know, even the casual Hitchcock fan will know that Robert Walker uh, had made his career for the five years before that playing, you know, sweet, young, naive, lovely, you know, with Judy yeah. Garland, opposite Judy Garland, yes. and, you know, see here Private Hargrove and stuff yeah. like that. And, and he was in all these, all these World War II movies where he's always sort of the naive kid kind of learning things. Right, yeah. sweet, naive kid, the hero, and then I don't know what Hitchcock saw in him. I don't know what possessed him to say, that's our Bruno, but... Well, he was an alcoholic. Yeah, and he, that was his last full film. Right? Uh, yeah. Although he is, in Sea of Grass, he's not such a nice guy. I've never not a good movie. That. Not what? a good movie, but... Which then, one? Sea of Grass. Brad? I've never seen oh, it. Sea that's of Grass. A, the Hepburn Tracy that the Elia Kazan directed. Yeah. It's, it's not, I think it's the worst Hepburn Tracy. It, uh, you might be right about that. Yeah, I've never been able to get through the whole thing. But what I, what I love about Bruno is that, you know, as clearly insane as he is, there is a method to his madness. There is a clock-like precise oh, yeah. logic to everything he does. So you oh, yeah. like my ideas. Oh, sure, Bruno, they're all great <laughs> ideas. They're all wonderful. And when you get to meet his mother and briefly meet his father, very briefly, yes. um, you can sort of understand how Bruno became Bruno. Yes, yeah. That's one of my favorite moments in the film is when he sees the painting that she's done and he's yes. like, oh my God, you got him. That's him. That's father. And she's like, really? I thought it was St. Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> I love that actress, Mary yeah, Lauren. Oh, she's wonderful. She's so good. And she didn't do that many different things. And he's sort of, he, he's, he, I like the, I love my villains without, Without background, we've talked before about why I love, say, Heath Ledger's Joker as opposed to the Joaquin Phoenix Jokers because I don't really want a backstory for my bad guys. That's why Iago and Othello is so terrifying is because you don't know his backstory. There is no reason, no, no easy, simple, straightforward, ah, there's the problem, reason. He is just chaos and evil. And that's Bruno. You bump into the wrong guy's feet on the train and bam, there goes your yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, an, an unusual, and, and I know you guys don't love Shadow of a Doubt as much as I do, but. I, you're gonna really disagree with me on this one. Uh, I really don't care for Joseph Cotton in it. Aha, uh, uh -huh. that's what I say too. I think, I think Cotton really <laughs> throws, I think, I, I mean, Joseph Cotton sometimes was very good. But uh, I think that that movie would have been really terrifying, really interesting if someone like Harry Grant had played that part. Or really, really could have believed that this very, very charming man is the one who's able to charm these, you know, lonely widows into getting what he wants. Where the Joseph Cotton, it's like, okay, I know right away this guy's a sleaze. Yeah. But we I, like, I like everyone else in it. I think Teresa Wright's wonderful. Yes, but we see, but we see him for. We know he's the bad guy. There's no mystery. We see him running from the cops, and yeah. But you can't figure out how nobody else can see that he's a bad guy except for Charlie, and that took takes a while. 
But I believe the scene in the, you know, in the bar where he says, you know, how, you know, you, you, you're in your little bubble here and you don't see that the world is a sty. And I, I believe him in that little monologue he gives about the widows, you know, their wives, their silly wives, you know, I, I, but I, I, I when he plays it, he, he twirls. A little heavy handed. He, he's so heavy handed in it. Yeah. Would you, how about yeah. like a Robert Mitchum or someone in that? Would that have been too obvious too? That would have been, no, it should have been somebody who's just so full of charm. That's why I say Cary Grant. Cary Grant would have been wonderful. He wouldn't have done it, but he would have been. No, wonderful. he would never would have done it. No, well, look what happens in Suspicion. We think he's that character in Suspicion and they pull away, pull back away from that at the very end. Yeah. Sorry, spoiler alert. But Hitchcock was forced to do that. Yeah, I yeah. think originally he thought he was going to be able to. Yeah. That's a film that's worth it just for one glowing glass of milk coming up the stairs. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, there's good, there are good scenes in it, and then that last few minutes, it becomes yeah. a I gotta be, I've only seen that movie once because I was so bitterly disappointed by the ending. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gently disagree with you guys. I, 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 I love Uncle Charlie. I, think, I agree with you that you might have found a better actor than Joseph Cotton, but I believe, him, I believe in his charm enough and in the naivete of Teresa Wright and her family to not- She was marvelous in it. Oh, and, and all, we've, we've talked about this before that all the, all the characters- Oh, Patricia Collins is wonderful in it. Yeah, and, and, yeah she's really good. And Henry Travers yeah. and, and, and Hume Cronin. Yeah, uh, Kirby? Yeah. Everybody else is wonderful, it's just, it's just him. Well, Even but the, then you also had that like tacked on, I don't know, I, I just don't believe the, the love interest with McDonald Carey and um, oh, like, well, now, but now you're getting away from this subject. I mean, you know, you, there are, yeah. that, he's terrible, and it's totally tacked on. But yeah, I, yeah, because it's just kind of like I remember the first time I saw it when it got to that part, I was like, huh? But you know, he he sort of just as as Bruno sort of embodies chaos. Uh, you know, you, you could do a whole, just as you could with Strangers on a Train. And I think Strangers on a Train and Shadow of a Doubt make a good pair because it's about the two sides of us. It's about the two Charlies, you know, Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton. And it's about Bruno and Guy being almost alter egos, two halves of a whole in Strangers on a Train. So I think those two belong nicely together. It's cross. Crisscross. Oh, sure, Bruno. I like all your ideas. <laughs> Wonderful. So I, well, that's I, a common theme in Hitchcock: the whole idea of duality. Right, and the shared guilt and the Catholic thing. Absolutely, yeah. John. Absolutely. Yeah. So so far, we've got we've got James Mason, uh, Robert Walker, and uh, I'm putting in Joseph Cotton uh, over Mike's and Mike's and John's strenuous objections. I'm going to take a, a, a shot in the dark at a film we haven't mentioned, I don't think, ever in our episodes. Michael, I'm going to be betting your number one was a former tennis player. Yeah. There you go. That, <laughs> that would be Tony Wendis. Yes. Uh, a little bit of background. John knows <laughs> this. I actually met the writer, Frederick Knott, mm. of, um, uh, of Dial in for Murder. And he basically only wrote three plays. And he lived off the income of that, uh, Wait Until Dark. Oh. And, and then another play, um, uh, A Talent for Murder, which wasn't a big hit. But um, when I was taking acting classes, and this was 37 years ago, yeah, was this older lady in our class that nobody wanted to work with. And I said, oh, well, let's do the line in winter. So I met her at her apartment. And there's this big picture of Hitchcock. 
And I had no idea she was married to Frederick Knott. Oh my goodness. And we wow. talked a little bit and I just said, oh, I, I love Violin for Murder and I love Hitchcock. And he, he, told, him, he told me that uh, he, he did, and I didn't know much about it. I mean, I'd seen it a couple of times. And um, I didn't know that uh, Hitchcock basically really did work on all the screenplays with uh, whoever was credited with writing yes. it. And also Alma, his wife too. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, she didn't work on that one, I don't think. By the 50s, I think she more or less took a back seat. I think Stage Fright was her last. I mean, I think he would go to Alma right. stuff for advice. So, so why, is, why is Tony Wendis your number one Hitchcock? Well, think about it. How many, at least, I don't know, maybe there are some British ones, but how many Hitchcock movies has the villain in all but 12 minutes of the movie. Oh yeah, he's, uh, he's, the, he's the star of the movie. He is the star. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't say that about Strangers on a Train because half the movie is Farley Granger stinking up the screen. Well, I can say <laughs> the same about Robert Cummings, Michael. Yes, 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 yes. But Robert Cummings is the only, I mean, if Tony Wendis has a opponent, it's not Robert Cummings, it's John Williams. Right, who's wonderful. wonderful. What is John Williams. Yeah. Yeah. John, yeah. You know, John Williams won the Tony Award for doing that on Broadway, and he was not a big film actor. Afterwards, after he did Valen um, for Murder, then he got a lot of film roles. But before that, he was mainly a stage actor. He hadn't, I, I looked him up in IMDb, and there's not a lot of no, and he achieves something, you know, obviously we don't want poor Grace Kelly to die, but yet we're also sort of rooting for him. We are. Kind yes. of, Abs kind of, and you'd have to. Say I, I, I mean, I think Ray Roland is excellent in it. I and I agree with you that he really. It's one of the few times where the villain is the star. I don't care for the movie though. I, I, really, I think don't. it's very. Stable. I think it's. I think it's minor Hitchcock. Okay, but I still, I still enjoy it. I've had the advantage. It's kind of stagey, which is unusual. For Although, Hitchcock. if you, if you, if well, you see, it, if you see the three D, you might, you might like it a little more if you ever see it in three D. And film form I used to have it once a year. Right, film forms has that has that projector that'll that, that. There's only two projectors in the whole country. I, you know, I, I'm kind of between you guys on the film. I, I like it. I, I'll watch it every time it's on. But yeah, it is. It is like rope. It is extremely stagey. It really feels like a film play. Uh, yeah. But but again, I agree with Michael in that what makes it watchable is Ray Moland. I mean, he just brings. Oh yeah. And I also saw a remake. Well, there's two remakes. There's one that's with Michael Douglas and yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow called The Purple oh. Murder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but and, it, and Viggo Mortensen is the yeah, uh, but is it the really, character. Yeah. It really veers off uh, the script. I mean, it's very, very different. But then there was a TV version uh, in the early 80s with Christopher Plummer, Angie Dickinson, Michael Parks, Anthony Quayle as the inspector, and Ron Moody as the uh, murderer. Oh, as uh, the captain. <laughs> as the captain, yeah. Less, uh, and it's it's not good. It's just, it's just. I'm sorry, Mr. Knott. It's not that good a play. No, it puts the knot in not good. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is. Ouch. And and just watching it, I'm thinking, God, you know, Hitchcock just adds so much just in. In casting, it, it's shorter. The, the Dialogue for a Murder is shorter. The Hitchcock version is shorter than um, uh, the actual play. I think it's like a half hour. 
And it's certainly uh, nice to see the first time I ever remember seeing Grace Kelly and I, you know, taken, sort of taken aback by how, how beautiful she is. And, um, and she makes that character, she makes that character sympathetic. I mean, yeah. Grace Kelly, Angie Dickinson, just think of the difference. Oh, what a falling off was there, as Shakespeare says. In yeah. <laughs> exactly how, how far we've fallen. And it's but, funny. So I've been a, been a bigger fan of, of the Hitchcock movie ever since I saw that remake. And I feel the same way about Rope because I had the misfortune of seeing the play Ooh. of Rope. And it's terrible. And yeah, I like the movie. I, I, I know the whole experiment with the long take, but with one exception, I think the movie is actually very well acted. And, and I, yes, I, 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 would, I, I would agree. I would agree with that, yeah. Wait, I thought you didn't like John Dahl either. I know you don't like No, I, like, I think John Dahl is actually pretty good in it. And Stewart is... Okay. I think Stewart's excellent in it. A little overwritten, but you know. Uh, I've always been curious uh, if Stewart knew that that was a gay character. Because in the play, it's it's definitely it's it's, it's, it's very clear. Yeah, it's well, it's very mean, clear. It's clear that there that the relationship between John Dahl and Farley Granger. Oh yeah, uh, oh yeah, and and uh, it's it's funny because I read Arthur Lawrence who wrote the screenplay. Uh, I read his autobiography, and at the time, Lawrence was having an affair with Farley Granger. Oh my. And Hitchcock knew all about it. Hitchcock was fascinated by him. Yeah, he was fascinated with anything to do with yeah. sexual you know, either, you know, intensity or deviance, especially. And you do know that yeah. both Cary Grant and Montgomery Cliff turned down roles in that movie. In Rope? Yeah. yeah I'm not surprised. Yeah. And by deviance, I mean to say deviance as it was in 1948. You know? Yeah, <laughs> but they, they, I think they just recognized themselves. Although John Dahl, who didn't have a long career in acting, uh, didn't have a long career in life, I think he died at 50. Um, he was gay. I did, I did not, well, I mean, there's, you know, the other film he's known for and is even better in is uh, Gun Crazy. And yeah, I like, I like, I just finally saw that two weeks ago. Crazy. I liked Gun Crazy. I really liked her. Peggy yeah, Cummings. she's excellent. Whatever happened. She is good. She's excellent. I'm sorry she didn't have more of a career. So I, you know, in, in summation. Uh, let's, I, uh, I have a, a, go in a different direction where uh, villains who are more, more human, more, more of the... There's only one at the top of the list. There's only one it could be. Well, there's a couple that I, I definitely think of, uh, two that I think of all the time that are more of the, the lower class villains that out of desperation are doing what they're doing. And that's Lars Thorwald and Carl Verloc, Sabotage. It's amazing how little time we see Raymond Burr, and Michael always says this when we talk about Rear Window, how well we seem to know that guy, whether it's the way yeah. it's shot or it's Raymond Burr, there is a real pathos to this, you know, this and guy who is just I like- I mean, the full character, a full character, and you don't really see him up close and see her really speak lines until the very end of the movie. Right, what do you want? Uh, do you want money? I don't have money. I mean, yeah. you, you just, he's a schmo. You just, yeah. and, you, and instead of be feeling hate for him, like, oh my God, you killed your wife in cold blood and cut her body parts up and took him out into the, in your sales case. But you're like, oh, I kind of feel sorry for this guy. I yeah. until, he, until he starts to push James Stewart out the window. Yeah, well. Then you're like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a little, it's a little rough. And Sabotage is, it's one of my favorite moments in all of Hitchcock 
when he kind of just allows Sylvia Sidney to to kill. He basically walks right into the knife. Yeah, you're you're not, and the way it's shot, you're not sure is he is he purposely like walking into her, or does she thrust the knife, or is it a little of both? You really I don't think it's know a little of both, but he, you know, you really after, don't know. But it's the the way it's shot too, and then that shot afterwards, you see her walking out, and you just see the defeat on the floor. But what really, I mean, he's he's involved with what he is because he, he needs money, whatever. You don't really quite, you don't know all the details as to why he's doing what he's doing because he's not politically motivated. Wait, he's I thought he was. With these terrorists. Yeah, the right. Sabotage. But after the boy is killed on the bus, and I watched, I watched it again recently, I forgot how emotionally wrenching the movie oh is. Oh, God. You have it? Oh. No, no, no. I watched it on Amazon. Oh, okay. And, uh, and we and know it, actually, if you have Amazon, Amazon Prime, it's free. Oh, um, okay, great, fabulous. And we we uh, know. And, the but the thing is that after that happens, and Sylvia Sidney finds out that he is the one responsible for you know having him carry the bomb and get on the bus and everything, he sort of dismisses it. Yeah. Yeah, he, 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 his behavior is sort of like, oh, you know, I just broke a glass in the kitchen. It's okay. We can just sweep up the glass. And, you know, well, doesn't he say at one point, it. how would you have felt if I had had the bomb or something like that? So, yeah, I, but it's like, oh, my God. He kind of throws it away. He's completely, yeah, he's completely evil. <laughs> and, uh, and, just, and Sylvia Sidney is such a good actress. and makes, yeah. Oh, and, she's excellent and, in it. And her revenge is so... Just, God, but that scene, you know, and for those of you who haven't seen Sabotage, and that's a lot of you, it's from 36, and it is, the scene is, he, they, they the nest of spies is being spied on, so they can't get out. So, Sylvia Sidney's the wife, her little brother lives with him, so they give the package to the little boy, he's supposed to leave it on the steps of, what, the courthouse, I think, at two o'clock, but then he gets distracted by, there's a street fair, or something, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and also and, there's the part two where the street vendor asks, uh, the, that uses uh, to demonstrate him toothpaste and everything, all these little things. And he's such a likable, sweet boy. And you're sitting there going, kid, come on, you got a bomb in there. And you know, it's the, but, but usually 99 times out of 100, something will stop the bomb from going off. And, and I this believe- it didn't. Right, and I believe Hitchcock regretted that. I, he I, did. Yeah. He talks about it in the True Fall book. He, that it didn't work. Well, if we're, if we're going back to the British films, I'm throwing Paul Lucas in there from- He's uh, on my from honorable Great mention Manic. list. Yep, absolutely, because he's a, he's a masterful, suave villain, very, you know, he's a doctor, so he's respected, and he, you know, it takes us a while. It takes the nun in high heels for us to figure out that he's a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, where I thought you were going with this, John, was that, I mean, if, if we were making in a top five, I think everybody's number one just because of the part and because of the actor has to be Claude Rains. In yeah, oh, most definitely. Claude Rains. Claude Rains, that is my favorite Hitchcock villain, partly because it's Claude Rains. He's so great in it. It's he one is, of the great performances of ever, ever I think, yes. on film. Completely yes, he's so good. Unbelievable. But also, he's very—he's a very human, suave, cultured villain. He's—he's—you see vulnerability in him, and totally. because of the because of the, the the structure of the movie, the the Cary Grant character who can't express his love, but the Claude Rains character can. He's so likable. I mean, there—I was watching it last night, and I thought, 
it's too bad. I, I was watching the scene in the restaurant where they their first date. Yeah. And and that Louis Callahan is a very good looking man. Yes, he is. <laughs> He's very good looking. Thank but you. but there's there's such ease between him and Ingrid Bergman, and you almost yeah. kind of wish, Claude, can't you can't you just flip sides? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, who needs the Nazis? They're, you're on the wrong side of history here, yeah. Alex Sebastian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's the, then, the the famous scene, of course, when he goes to his mother. But there's this, the part before too that I absolutely love is when he catches uh, Harry Grant the wine cellar, which gives yeah, him the wine cellar. Oh yes. Oh, but it's it's so simple the way he does it. And he just he says sorry to intrude on this tender uh -huh. scene. But he, and he says, he stays so still, yet you could write a novel on everything that man is thinking and feeling at that moment. Absolutely. And he never quite believes that, yeah. she, could, that she could love him. And when it's proven right, it's like it's all his worst fears about himself. It's almost like he gives up or at yeah. least puts things in mother's hands. And the fact that mother's right. I love the conversation between him and his mother. She will the, have um, to go, Alex. Yes. She's great. She's great. <laughs> but when, when the way she lights her cigarette. But when they're, they're arguing about her, when she said, yeah. you know, I'm sorry if we don't have to sit around like two grinning idiots. And, and, and so Alex is complaining that uh, the mother's not nice to uh, Alicia. Is, yeah. is there a Hitchcock film where the villain is given as much life as Alex is in Notorious? I don't think so. I don't think Probably so. Probably not. I don't think so. And or as, is, is as likable. Right. And as you say, you had an actor up to the challenge. I mean, who's better? Oh, than, yeah. I mean, the only person who I can think of who, you know, comes close in our modern era is Philip Seymour Hoffman, someone who could do little bit parts or leads or anything yeah. in between with equal ease and believability and was just absolutely believable in everything he did. That was Claude he, Rains. With Claude Rains, even if I didn't like the movie, I generally liked him. Because like, like the movie that a lot of people love him in, well, love him and Betty Davis is Mr. Skeffington. Yeah. And I don't like Betty Davis in it, but I love Claude Rains. I, I have to think really, I've never seen a bad Claude Rains performance. Period. I don't think I have either. And, no. and you, I mean, of course you root for Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman to get together and, to of course. Together and let the Nazis and their uranium experiments be stopped. Yeah. But you, oh my God, when he has to walk back into the house and face them at the end, yeah. And yeah. they lock the car door on him and yeah. it's, oh, he just ripped the heart like out. To talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's so um, painful. I think of all her movies, I don't think Ingrid Bergman ever looked better. And that's saying oh, she's and and she's great in it too. She is. Oh, she's. I think it's her best performance. And Grant is believable too. And, and you know, as someone who, as you say, Michael, is completely in, unable to express his love for her in the way that mm -hmm. uh, that Claude Rains' character can, and then you know, finally in the end, has you know, can yeah. can break through to that. But it's it's uh, he. I mean, it's Claude Rains' film. I mean, he carries that film yeah. in a way that, yeah. that 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 no other Hitchcock villain does, except maybe, yeah. as you say, Michael, maybe Ray Moland in. Uh, yeah, in but Notorious is a better movie than than. Oh, Oh, no, it's course. and I, I'm the only it's reason it's in my I, Hitchcock top five. Me too. Me oh, too. Yes. Yeah, uh, and for those uh, for those of our fans who have not seen it yet, you know, Heidi hints now 
uh, see it. It is, it, is, it is perfection. And it doesn't show that much. Even Turner Classics no, doesn't yeah. seem to have it. Why? Why is that? I don't know. It's available. Uh, you can buy it. And I, I'm going to seize the moment and throw in another relatively obscure Hitchcock villain who also we get to see a little bit. And in this case, it's not about loving a woman. It's about loving his daughter. And that's Herbert Marshall in Foreign Correspondent. Oh, yeah. 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 Because, yeah. you know, he is the head of this evil organization. They're torturing old men in <coughs> mills and stuff. Like He's really bad news, but he, but, you know, because Marshall is such a good actor. And, yes. And, you know, that he, in the end, literally sacrifices himself so that his daughter and Joel McRae's character and, and George Sanders and everyone else can live. He, he knows that another body on the floating plane wing is going to sink it. And so he surreptitiously slides off. Right. And, you know, so again, a, a really bad guy doing really bad things with global implications, like Alex Sebastian in Notorious, mm -hmm. but, um, but a redeeming characteristic in the, the genuine love he has for, I love that movie. It, it, it gets overlooked so easily. What do you yeah. guys think of it? I like, I like it. it. Oh, I like it. Yeah. It's got some look, signature, Hitch, has some signature Hitchcock moments in it. The, the scene with the, the windmills, the windmills and, and the umbrellas. And the, and the plane crash at the end was pretty, is pretty spectacular effect for 1940. I mean, oh, very, yeah. Yes. Very yeah. real, very believable. And, and it's got George Sanders. So how can you yes, lose? It does. Scott Folio, you know, two small Fs at the beginning. <laughs> okay, I'm going to put in one that I know John is really going to disagree with me, and you might too, Josh. This is a bridge for George Sanders, the same year of Foreign Correspondent. Judith Anderson. Yeah. Oh, Mrs. Danvers. Michael, who could disagree with Mrs. Danvers? Are you kidding? Oh, well, she's completely evil. I just, I'm not crazy about the movie, that's all. I'm not either, yeah. but that's Olivier and Fontaine. That's not Dame Judith. Actually, I, I, well, Fontaine, I think, is actually pretty good in it. And I'm not a big Fontaine fan. Olivier is not. No. Olivier is pretty, pretty stiff. Everyone else, I watched that again yesterday, too. Everyone else in it is, is, is good. I really uh, like the smaller parts, like um, Nigel Stock and Gladys Cooper as the sister and brother-in-law. But when I saw a, a remake of Rebecca on Masterpiece Theater with uh, Diana Rigg, I thought, oh, Judith Anderson really was good in this movie. Well, because we can put her in that last category because her mm -hmm. redeeming characteristic is her love and her loyalty for yeah. Rebecca. I mean, that's, yeah. it manifests itself in some dangerously psychotic ways, yeah. but her devotion and yeah, love she's, she's obsessive. Yeah. I should also put in a little uh, personal bit. I had to do her in a scene in acting class, uh, a play called The Mystery of Irma Vett. And I had to play two characters. John, you weren't in class then. And one of them, it, it literally said in the script, a la Judith Anderson and Rebecca. Wow. So I, at the time I didn't even have the movie, but I, you could rent things in those days. So I immediately went, went uh, and rented Rebecca and I watched her over and over and over again. And I, I really got her down. I, I literally got her voice. The thing is, and I realized with her, that she never smiled unless she's talking about the first Mrs. Winter. The first yeah. Mrs. Winter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, she never smiles, not even a hint of a smile. But the, 
she was one of my uh, top five villains. No, and she, she is. There's genuine psychosis and obsession there, yeah. but but there's oh, some yeah. explanation for it. There's some. Although we did we ever really find out why she and the first Mrs. De Winter were so. Oh, I I think I think she's a repressed lesbian. I always thought that too. It's not. Yeah. It's not made explicit in the. No, it's not. not. In the in the De Maurier novel or in the film, right? No, it's not. But I suspected. I mean, come on, she burns the house sense. down. Yeah. yeah, that would that would make sense. Uh, <laughs> one from the '30s, from the British period, that I always think of is uh, as sort of the template for the future Hitchcock suave cultured villain is Godfrey Turrell in 39, uh, 39 Steps. He's missing uh -huh. one finger. You mean yeah. like this? <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that, and that's a film we haven't gotten to talk about a lot, but, no. and you might even throw Peter Lorre from uh, the original Man Who Knew Too Much in there too. But, mm. uh, but yeah, but Godfrey Turrell is the, uh, is the suave. Yeah, he's, um, not, he's not in it that much, but I mean, it's definitely kind of the, the template for the, the future suave culture villains. I, I think that's a really good point, John. I absolutely agree with that. He is the, he is the mold. Um, and I'm going to throw in, uh, the listeners know how much I love I Confess, in spite of its many flaws. Um, Montgomery Clift being entirely made of wood is one of them. I disagree. It. I think Clift is really good in it. because the whole. The whole thing about that character is that he can, he's not allowed or to express what he knows and feels. He's got right. to keep everything inside. Well, and as Michael pointed out, when we talked about I Confess, he even comes across as sort of leaden in the flashback scenes. But or one of you, I think you both pointed it out, that that flashback is subjective. It's Ann Baxter's flashback to the time right. before the war. Yes. And... Um, uh, and she rem maybe she remembers him as a lot more open and receptive, you know, and, and, and human yes. than he was when he came back and after the war and decided to join the priesthood. But the villain, and I confess, is one of the most interesting villains. In, in, in a sense, he's among the most evil because he commits an act of murder for money. Um, the priest, Montgomery Clift, is blamed for it because he was wearing a priest's cassock when he committed the crime. And, you know, for those who don't know the film, he confesses the murder to Father Michael, to Montgomery Clift. And then when Father Michael becomes suspect, he can't say the truth because of the sanctity of the confession. And you keep waiting for Keller, for Oihasa, the character, to break. And he does. And, and as you were saying before the film, he... But he's, but yes, there's a certain kind of patheticness about him. You know, I was a poor immigrant. We were poor immigrants and yeah. he took us in. And my wife, Alma, works so hard, you know, played by the wonderful Dolly Haas in the film. Oh, yeah, she's excellent in it. And, and, and you know, rather than, so he's willing to let Father, Father Logan die. And then rather than having her reveal the truth because she's so horrified that he's going to let this happen, he shoots her in public and runs into the Chateau Frontenac. I mean, come on. But it's but a fascinating character. And, um, and I mentioned when I was talking about I Confess in episode five, that in the original play that it's based on our two consciences. Um, I don't know what the wife's name is, but Hitchcock changed the name to Alma, his own wife's name. Oh, okay. And that, and, and you know, all those lines about my Alma, she works so hard take on a kind of a very personal feeling. But, you know, Keller, 
the name of the character that Hassa plays, doesn't show up much, but in some senses, he's a really interesting villain. And oh, definitely. He clearly has a conscience because he goes right to confessional. Yeah. And yet, not enough of a conscience to, yeah, uh, no. or he's too much of a coward to uh, not let, you know, uh, let Father Logan be, uh, be hung at the gallows for a crime he didn't commit, knowing full well that Father Logan will not reveal the truth. So another reason to watch, I confess, is that great performance. See, and that's, that movie's around a lot. I, I mean, think Turner has it on all the time. Let's, let's talk for a moment about uh, the villains who don't show up much but, ha but are important. Let's and of course, we got to begin um, with, with Tom Otto Kruger and Saboteur. Yes, amazing. He's talk about your suave, evil, yeah. evil guy, just like yeah. Herbert Marshall in, and, yeah. and Alex Sebastian and Van Damme and, uh, in North by Northwest and Godfrey Turrell in uh, 39 Steps. Yeah, absolutely. Saboteur, this Cummings is not good, but boy, is that an underrated film. All right. I don't, but, mind, I don't mind him in Saboteur. No, I, he's actually quite, I, I don't love Priscilla Lane in the film. I, no, no. I do like Norman Lloyd, though, as Fry. The yes. Best. Yeah, he's good. Who's still good. with us at 105. Is he? He's still alive? Wow. He's still alive. He works occasionally. That's amazing. I think he holds the Guinness Book of Records as the oldest working actor. Wow. That's totally, I mean, and, and you know, that scene on top of the Statue of Liberty is, you know, where his sleeve yeah. starts to yeah. rip. He's like, I'll clear yeah. you, I'll clear you. God, I love that. Well, remember, there were years that he didn't act at all. He was Hitchcock's uh, producer. producer on the show. And then shows up in St. Elsewhere, and then as St. Elsewhere, uh, and he does yeah. movies. The headmaster yeah. in uh, Dead Poet Society. Yeah, Age of uh -huh. Innocence. Yeah. The scene I always think of, though, with Otto Kruger and Saboteur is that, that moment with the, the child. And it, for a moment, you think he's a really good guy that might help him, and then you realize, oh, he's oh, a no, villain. No, no. <laughs> the child's a problem. If, he, if yes. he had to, he would eat that child for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now here's a question that I had in my honorable mention if you would consider this woman a villainess. It's in a very bad Hitchcock movie. Anna Parody. I'm not going to do my Louis Jordan imitation again. No, I, you don't I, have to. Let me tell you, Mrs. Case. Paradine, she's bad, bad to the bone. <laughs> but she, she is bad. Yeah, but uh, but Bali is sort of. Uh, I love her in in uh, the Third Man. But well, of course, she, the Third Man's a great movie. She really is a third-rate Ingrid Bergman. She really is. Okay, but as far as point. the way it's written, though, I have. To, I've only seen Paradine Case once or twice. I really need to go back to it. Um, because she's so brilliant in Third Man. I just saw Third Man a few weeks ago and like, wow, she's really believable. Well, you know, we've been dancing around Gavin Elster here. And I was just gonna say, and I, I you know the thing about uh, Tom Helmore in that, he's not in it very much. But very the, little. the thing that I really, really admire the way he did it is that he comes off so sincere. You completely believe everything he says. I mean, Scotty is not stupid. Scotty sees no. people, I mean, you know, and he absolutely, I and mean, of course he gets one look at Kim Novak and decides, yeah, I'll take the case, but yeah. at least, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's totally, the whole thing, I mean, it's, it's so implausible, you know. Yeah, I know, I don't believe it either that she's possessed by the spirit of Carlotta Valdez, but, you know, she'll go off somewhere. And those speeches that he has are just 
He, I, I, what else is Tom Hillmore in? I've never remembered seeing him. He's about North by Northwest, I think, for like two seconds. Yeah, he's one of the guys at the table in, in the, the, uh, the, the, the Yeah. But, uh, he's an advice and consent. He shows up in small parts. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if he's in the movie enough to, quali to qualify on our list of top Hitchcock baddies, but boy. No, no, but he's certainly important in Vertigo, that's for sure. Actually, which... if you want to say somebody's a baddie in, in Vertigo, Henry Jones. I mean, he's, no, he's just a love He's 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 leading the little inquest there, and he's but he's kind of loathsome the way he does it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> which she neglected to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, here's my question though. I know how you guys feel about the film, but are you going to give me Barry Foster in Frenzy? It's funny. Oh, I was yes. uh, Stanley Kaufman in his review of Frenzy. And in, in the book, I have a Stanley Kaufman's reviews. He says, you can always tell how good a Hitchcock movie is by the villain. In go. this case, Barry Foster is a middling villain and Frenzy is a middling movie. And I kind of agree. You know, it's funny, and we said this before, but I think if Hitchcock had used more restraint in the film and not being so graphic in the violence, I think it would have actually been better. I think it would have- You might be right. Better. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. And part of that was like, I think Hitchcock saying, well, you know, I can do it too. Because that's yeah. when that's when movies were becoming much realer, more graphic. Because you had the rating system. Both sexually and, and with violence. Everything was a stress on realism. This is his only R-rated movie. Yeah. Yeah, and deservedly so. It's brutal. It's I brutal. Mean, you know, My, the only thing, I, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, the only thing I like about Frenzy, really, is the scenes with Alec McGowan and Michonne. Yeah, that right. one. But, but what's really interesting is that the hero, the putative hero of the film, you know, John Finch's character, mm -hmm. is, is, as, is actually less likable than the villain. Yeah, well, that happens a lot in Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, Rusk is totally charming. I mean, you know, he's got that, that whole world of the green market. He's kind of got it under his thumb and everybody knows him and he's Bob's your uncle and everyone. You completely believe that he would have enough camouflage to get away with the horrors that he's getting away with. So I, I, I know you, Fred, there's not much to love in Frenzy, although I think, except those Alec McGowan, Vivian Merchant scenes, but um, I, I, I think Barry Foster might, might qualify on my list. I mean, I don't even know who to talk about when we were talking 60s Hitchcock, you know, Torn Curtain and Topaz aren't even worth mentioning. But no. as an exit question to this, to this part, Norman Bates is not- let's, Now let's remember there might be two or three people out there who have never seen Psycho. So. Too bad. This is not Spoiler. for them then. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right, turn off, turn off your podcast right now. Available turn off if you top. haven't seen Psycho, but I know everybody who's listened everybody. to this. And it's available on iTunes, Spotify, and uh, SoundCloud for those of you. Yeah. Well, you could in. say, you could say that Norman Bates, Norman is not a villain, but Mother is. Yes. At least in Norman's mind, anyway. I mean, we uh -huh. we My only mind. see Norman's mother once, and she's lost a few pounds at the end there. But <laughs> 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 but. It is, I mean, people who don't think about it just, oh yeah, Norman Bates, Psycho Killer, sure, one of the classics, but I, I, I can't, I, maybe it's just that Perkins is so good, 
uh, I cannot see Norman as a villain. No, I don't either. No, it's he's 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 dangerous. He's and he's not. He's he's yeah. He's a highly disturbed person. But seems, yeah, you can't really call him a villain. Right, and if we believe doesn't, and he doesn't do what he doesn't do what he does for for personal gain. Right. There's no or political gain or yeah, yeah. And if we're to believe the stories of, you know, that the sheriff tells and, you know, the, all the things we hear that he certainly yeah. came by his, his psychosis, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think Psycho, I agree with you guys. I think Psycho is a movie without a villain, possibly the late Mrs. Bates. But, you know, we don't know. Those are just stories. Yeah. Uh, did you guys watch the series with Vera Farmiga? No. Um, Bates, Bates Motel, it was supposed to be really good. I have to was catch it? up on I it. just... Yeah, I know. I remember seeing uh, Psycho 2, 3, and 4 with Perkins, and that was enough. That was enough that was Psycho good. for me. <laughs> All right. What about Jessica Tandy as... In the Birds? The bad in the guy. Birds, in the the villain? No. No, I don't see her as a villain. Uh, I see her as someone who's just, who's afraid. I mean, I if, you want, if you want to get philosophical about it, especially in the age of climate change, we're all the villains. Because, you know, we, part of the message of the birds is that we have this arrogance that, you know, we can, we, or, or, or what we're going through right now with the quarantine, that we have this arrogance that we can dominate nature. And every once in a while, nature rises up and bites us in the ass, taps yeah. us on the shoulder and says, um, you're only in charge until you're not. And, and now we're, we are humbled at, at the feet of nature. And, you know, that's why I love the fact that the bird attacks are completely unexplained. That is my favorite. Well, they, they tend to happen when there's some sort of unresolved issue between people or some sort of chaos between people. Uh, I, I don't think they're, you can see well, them as, 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 as metaphorical. Right, if they're metaphorical. If, if, you see them that, if you see them that way, they're not completely, uh, you know, insane kind of thing. If they're metaphorical metaphors for a lack of emotional connection, which I told, which yeah. you know, in, in our favorite yeah. Hitchcock moments, number three for me was when they get in the car at the end and she touches, you know, she grabs Tippy Hedren by the shoulder and gives her this warm smile. Our right. first moment of real emotional connection in the film. But yeah. she's what she's the one who stops Mitch from, uh, you know, connecting with anyone, at least according to Suzanne Plachette, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Annie. Well, there is there is that moment when. Uh, after the Jessica Tandy character has gone to go see the other chicken farmer. Oh my God. Finds him. And when she comes back and she's extremely upset and she's in bed and, and Tippy Hedren serves her tea and they have that conversation. There's, there's, a, there's a, a connection there. I mean, yeah, they, she says, they, thanks for the tea, Melanie. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> no, but she reveals, she reveals, you know, some things about herself and Melanie begins to sort of understand more about her. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I agree with you. I don't see Jess, I don't see uh, her as the villain. I see us as the villain and, and okay. our, our arrogance. But here, right after the birds, Marnie. Now, do you see Diane um, Baker as not, a villainess? Not the mother? Not the mother. The mother is I mean, screwed she's up. a great performance, but. Yeah. No, but and she's the, screwed up. But she's not a villainess. She's screwed up. Yeah, but then she, but then after the screw up and Marnie kills, spoiler alert, Marnie kills the sailor, she spends the rest of Marnie's childhood not loving Marnie. I mean, Marnie's- I, 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 think, I think she's, because she's just so nuts. Because at the very end, 
You're the only yeah. thing I ever did, love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, the Diane Baker my leg, Barney. <laughs> is, <laughs> is is purely villainous. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I happen to really like her in it. I oh, like, I do too. Oh, I think I like she's her more than a Dippy Hedren. I'm I think she's excellent in it. Yeah. But is but is Mark is is Sean Connery, you know, because he he forces himself upon her after their wedding, and that's a fairly villainous moment. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a suggestion that he rapes her. Yeah. I think it's more than a suggest that look in her <laughs> well, eyes. I didn't want to say okay for sure, but you know. um, yeah, I, 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 I think I think Marnie is is too complicated to point at a at a okay. bad guy. But yeah. yeah, I mean, everyone's got. I mean, you know, Marnie herself is a thief. I mean, she and a a serial thief, but she yeah. um, but comes by it honestly, as we've said. Yeah, no, I, I Marnie is starting to really get its due. I, I you know, it's not. It should. I think it's a very underrated movie. I totally agree, and you know, of course, you know, the you know we we've mentioned we talked about our favorite books, Donald Spoto's uh, The Art of Alfred Hitchcock. You know, before all the stuff came out about Tippi Hedren rejecting his advances, he tries to make this whole argument that the crappy sets and the crappy reproduction were, you know, Hitchcock's attempt to be expressionistic. No, yeah. it were his attempts to sabotage the film after she rejected it. And he admits that later on in The Dark Side of Genius, which is an even better book, I think. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, uh, Michael. I think Marnie is deservedly very for 1964 yeah very sophisticated in its approach oh yeah yeah i like the movie a lot it's beautiful looking i love the use of the of color in that movie yep the I, I love bernard herman's score oh my god well i mean i mean i think that's one of his top uh, and yeah and that's saying something the sean connery character is not exactly <laughs> completely sane either no, <laughs> she, said that to him. she said, you know what, you've trapped something, you've trapped a wild animal, and now you yeah. want to study it. I mean, yeah, he's just, Mark is just as messed up as everybody else in the film. <laughs> Except Martin Gable. We love Strike. Who I still think looks like, the, <laughs> looks like our current Pope. Uh, <laughs> only, only Michael would make the connection between His Holiness uh, and, um, and Martin I Gable. I don't see that at all. <laughs> Have you, you've never seen them together. I think they look very similar. That's no, I think I think he's him. I think he's his unkind younger brother. <laughs> uh, that could work. Yeah, we'll make that work. <laughs> All right, so there you have it, Vintage Sand fans. Our discussion, uh, not a ranking because it's not something that really needs to be ranked. And uh, but the villains, maybe they don't define the film as well as clearly as they do say in something a little simpler psychologically like the Bond films. But, you know, a good villain can be like, like Alex Sebastian, like Bruno Antony, um, like Tony Wendis can, you know, I mean, Ray Milan, Ray Milan might get our top award because he's got the weakest material to work with. That's a good point. And yep. he, and it, it, Dial M is watchable strictly because of him as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yes. All right. I would, so, I would agree with that. We're just like the governors of Texas and Florida. We're opening up a little early. We're bringing back the necrology because we lost a couple of major figures in the last um, the la the last few weeks. Let's talk about uh, Joel Schumacher for a moment. Thoughts, gentlemen? I'm a um, fan. I'm a big fan, actually. Are you? And I'll tell you why. For there was one run 
Um, I think from between, say, Lost Boys, which was 87. I do like Lost Boys. And, and I love the original Flatliners. I thought it was great. Big, big misstep with dying young Julia Roberts and Campbell oh, Scott. Oh, boy, that's bad. Awful. But then The Client with Susan Sarandon. And I wasn't had, wild about that one either. Did an even better job on the other Grisham, A Time to Kill, the one with Samuel Jackson and Matthew McConaughey. I Didn't thought, I think that's great. And, and the film that, he, that is forgotten, and I have no idea why, I mean, very controversial at the time. And to me, it is a fascinating study. And one of my favorite Michael Douglas performances is Falling Down. I don't like Falling Down. That movie irritated the hell out of me. Jono, you want to chime in on this? But uh, I don't know. I think Schumacher, I think most of those movies, to me, it's kind of by the numbers. Well, but he's a designer. I mean, he started his career as a designer and he's very much into the look of his, I mean, the look of say, occasionally it, he's got a script like Lost Boys where he puts it all together. Lost um, Boys I enjoy. Lost, I, Lost Boys I like a lot, actually. I think it's, I, I mean, yeah, it has humor. And it's, and I remember the first time I saw it, it was just, it just seemed so different from the usual sort of vampire horror movie. It's like going in a completely different direction. No, and it's almost I, a comedy. I, I, and I've got to say that of the Grisham film adaptations, The Time to Kill is my favorite one. And I have no great love for Matthew McConaughey as an actor, but, mm, you know, Samuel lying. Jackson, I hope they died, I hope they burn in hell. <laughs> There's so many good moments in that film. Yeah, he was like, you know, he was a Michael Curtiz. He was a, a really good studio craftsman who once in a while rose above the material. Like with Lost Boys, I think. Check out Flatline. Have you have you seen Flatliners recently? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in a very long time. I saw it when it came out. I was not a big fan. It was very again very stylish as yeah. well. Even the the Val Kilmer Batman film, which everyone forgets, everyone's like, "Oh, Joel Schumacher killed the Batman franchise." I mean, the movies are they're slick. Yes, deliberately so. They're entertainment. He was not an auteur. He was not aiming no, for, not no. aiming for art. So, uh, but, but he did kill the Batman franchise. Batman and Robin is one of, maybe the worst superhero ever, movie ever made in that scene. Now, is that the one with uh, George Clooney? Yep, and the nipples on the bat suit. That's yeah. all you gotta hear. <laughs> I didn't see it, but I've heard Clooney talk about it in interviews. Yeah, at least he has a sense of humor about it. He's like, yep, I killed the Batman franchise <laughs> all by myself. So, uh, but you know, it, there, there is a lot in Schumacher's career. You know, it's he made entertaining movies. Not a great beginning towards of his career, not a great ending, but there again from '87, Lost Boys, through about '93, '94, and I, I think Falling Down is something worth watching. I, I remember one little bit in that movie where Michael Douglas is yelling at uh, some uh, road construction workers. And he said, and he starts yelling, "You're just here just to get paid, aren't you?" And the guy looks at that and goes, "Yes." I don't think that would ever happen. I just, I saw that scene, that that line, and I thought, no way would the would these workers tell him that ever. Well, and we get, we think it's one thing. We think it's this, you know, uh, this, you know, white defense contractor who's been, you know, who's divorced. And I think Barbara Hershey, who plays the ex-wife, is very good in it. And you know, he's, Tuesday Weld in it too. Tuesday Weld was right, and, and the, the other story is Robert Duval. It's his last, you know, right. the cliche. It's his last week on the job as a cop, and the stories are separate. But in the end, they come together on the Santa Monica Pier, 
And that scene with Douglas and Duval, I think is fantastic. That look on Michael Douglas's face when he sees the cops and he looks like, wait, I'm the bad guy here? I did everything they told me. I went to school. I went to work for the government. I, I, I made, you know, things that defended America. How did I end up being the bad guy? And, my, and Duval says, listen, you're not special. The only thing that makes you special is that little girl over there. And the whole thing is when he's in the Army-Navy shop in the middle of the film, the film pivots. You think it's going to be like this sort of racist fantasy. And then the, the Army-Navy shop guy's like, I'm with you, I'm one of you, like the neo-Nazi. And Michael Douglas is like, I'm not like you. You're disgusting. And the film goes somewhere else completely. Yeah. I guess I need to see it again, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's worth a look. It is, it is sort of captures where we were back in 1993 in the wake of, say, Rodney King and all those other issues. Some words about Sir Ian Holm, oh. gentlemen. Uh, One of my favorite. Great actor. Great actor. Great, great actor. And the other night I was watching, which I hadn't seen in 40 years, Chariots of Fire, which is his only Oscar nominee. Right. He's the the coach. Yep. I remember that. And I realized that he's the only person I remember in the whole film because I found that film, frankly, kind of forgettable. Oh, I mean, I hate masterpiece theater films, but, uh, you know, Ben Cross, Ian Charlson... Well, they were good actors, but they played, frankly, it was a movie about two drips, two English drips. They just weren't know. that interesting of a character. Could it be? I, I frankly didn't care if they won or not. Well, I remember first seeing Ian Holm as Ash, as the android in Alien. And, you know, that was a fabulous performance. I mean, completely. Yeah. No, nah, he was, he was always good. And a little piece of trivia, for several, for almost 15 years, he didn't do any stage work because he said he suffered from uh, un, unanswerable uh, stage fright. Interesting. He just didn't want to go and do any plays. And he was on a talk show, and the, I forget who was interviewing him. He said, what will, what will it take for you to uh, return to the theater? And he goes, well, if Harold Pinter writes me a part. And Harold Pinter did. He started out with Pinter, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. The Homecoming. Right. Uh, have you ever seen the movie of that? I have yes. not. Oh, it's, yes. I have it. It's wonderful. It's, it's, yeah, it's for good. the original six um, original actors, and it's Sir Peter Hall. It's one of the best film plays I've ever seen. And Ian Holm is great. But, but here, Pinter wrote him apart, and he, he sure is enough his word. It was called uh, Moonlighting, and, uh, I, which I saw in London, and Ian Holm was great, and then he did Lear. And I love him as Flewellen in the Brannock Henry V. He's yep. wonderful in that part. And yep. I also like him as Polonius in the Zeffirelli Mel Gibson uh, Hamlet. I, 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 I don't love that film. Oh, uh, I hate it. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting take on, you know, a more physical uh, Hamlet than you'll usually see. But again, anything, he was the dad in, in Garden State, remember? He was Zachary's right. dad. Yes. Said, and yep. one, of his, one of his few leading roles in movies, uh, Adam O'Goyan's uh, Sweet Hereafter. Sweet Hereafter. He's sweet. Guys, really, really, really good movie. He's, he's oh, great. My God, can you explain to me why that movie has disappeared? I have. I don't know. So devastated by that. Adam O'Goyan's films in general have disappeared. I will never, I remember seeing that movie, I, that, that moment when the bus goes out on the lake. Oh my God. It's, it's still so vivid in my head. It's as if I just watched the movie. Yeah. 
That was a great and, movie. And, you know, we were talking about Claude Rains and Philip Seymour Hoffman before. Holm was another person who could play a lead, play yep. someone who shows up on screen for 10 minutes, like Flewellen in Henry V, or anywhere in between, and be utterly and completely believable in anything he yeah. did. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you know, when he was, a, I'm not a fan of Peter Jackson's, uh, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit films. He, I'm not he either. He was up there as the older Bilbo. But, uh, you know, he, he, he could do anything. I really the next time I see you, Josh, I'm going to lend you a copy of my copy of The Homecoming. I'm a Pinter fan, so I definitely want to see that. It's just brilliantly done. And the last to mention is the great and unfortunately almost completely forgotten screenwriter, Louis John Carlino. Yep, he just died a couple days ago at 88. And uh, I looked up his uh, credits, uh, seconds. Oh, and we listen to episode two when we're talking about Frankenheimer in those early 60s black and white. You, you guys will know how much I love that movie. Um, he wrote uh, The Brotherhood, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, and that he also directed. Mm. I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, which is his only Oscar nomination. Really? Uh, the Great Santini, which he also directed. Brilliant screenplay from And Resurrection. Resurrection. That's another film. Another right? movie, yeah. We were talking about this before uh, we, we, we came on. That is absolutely inexplicable why that movie has been forgotten. I wonder if you can even rent it or get it anywhere. It's uh, Ellen Burst, my favorite Ellen Burstyn performance, which is yep. something about a woman She's who's great. Had, Sam Shepard's great in it, the evil little Galleon. Yep, who has powers. And hmm? Yeah, it's about, she's got healing powers. Yeah. And she is able to, doesn't she have an accident or something? And she, yeah. she comes back from the edge, from the brink of death. Yeah, her husband these, dies in it. Right, and she has these powers of healing. And it's what, it's not necessary. it's about how this impacts her psychologically. Right, and yeah. also how uh, Christians fight her on it. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah the Sam right. Shepard character right. is, is uh, Okay, so, so that's our. I, I just I remember I do re I remember when that movie was playing when it first came out and it had been around for a little while and I finally saw it with a friend and afterwards I just kept thinking to myself why are more people going to go see this this is so good yeah yeah and at the same time it's like who, who thought of this movie where did it come from it's, right. it was who, so unusual it was a hard movie right. to market yeah exactly yeah yes I and think so yeah. I think that's probably part of the problem. And so Michael, Resurrection was his, was his last credit? Um, I think he did a couple of other things that uh, television that I wasn't that- We never wrote with. another film after that. That's really interesting. Um, I have the brother, I have the fox. I just wrote down a whole bunch. Is that Ray Milan calling before? What? <laughs> Yep, um, you know, I, I put all the scissors away so it shouldn't be any problem, but. <laughs> uh, you know, this, we, this is all impromptu, nothing planned. But um, so that's our recommendation from this. Uh, if you can track it down from 1980, Resurrection with Ellen Burstyn is just, um, I've never seen another film quite like it. And exactly, uh, yeah, it's a very unique movie. Very unique movie. All right, and so that about does it, fellas. That about wraps up episode 22, our long threatened uh approach to Hitch villainy and Hitchcock. And um, our next 
we're going to do a two-parter, I think, next. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's going to have to be two parts. To move with the times. And, uh, you know, we're going to figure out a way to talk as best we can, given mm. the fact that we are three middle-aged white men, um, you know, about the portrayal of race in Hollywood, both from the perspective of filmmakers not of color, and hopefully, and maybe in the second episode, um, you know, open your uh, eyes and minds to some filmmakers of color, you know, pre-Spike Lee, pre-Black exploitation that are, are worth our attention, but we cannot, we cannot let this moment uh, go, go by. Well, I think what we'll do is talk about the fact that especially earlier movies, so many earlier movies were racist in their use of stereotypes of, of, across the board. I mean, just uh, reflectively. Yeah, even yeah I mean, people, people, African-Americans, Asians, Latins, it was pretty much everybody. But then also films that tried to deal with racism as a subject. Yeah, and not always, you know, not until you and get Not to always the successfully. There are, there are some movies that may have been groundbreaking when they came out, but haven't aged well at all. As a Jewish yeah. person, I can say Gentleman's Agreement, Oscar oh. Best Picture, is top of yeah. that list, because who wouldn't believe Gregory Peck as a Jewish person? <laughs> I can't watch more than 15 minutes of that movie. There we go. And, uh, you know, I think we'll open one of those episodes by addressing, you know, sharing our, I don't want to do it now, but talking about The Gone with the Wind, uh, HBO Max uh, controversy. Because- Where it's coming back. They're bringing it's, it back. Right. With well, wasn't, isn't the whole idea that they were going to, they, they were never going to like just take it off completely, never bring yeah. it back, but they were going to put some sort of preface on it? They are. About, they're having the woman who does the uh, silent movies on TCM. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like a, well, like and a again, you, you, it would be nice if we could talk about the history of film without birth of a nation, but we can't. We I mean, can't. It, yeah, it, we're going to have to talk it, about it. It's disgusting. I mean, there's no other word for it. But yeah. on the other hand, it is, you it's know. A ground, it's a, a landmark film as far everyone. as the language of film is concerned. Exactly. exactly. So we will try to sort that all out and, you know, recognize our, uh, you know, that our, our perspective, you know, is, uh, is a difficult one to approach this topic from in, uh, in, 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 a, in a way that has full vision, but it, we can't let the moment go. We have to, and hopefully we will uh, expose you to filmmakers like Oscar Mishaw and, and Spencer Williams and some of the early, what they call the Chitlin Circuit African-American filmmakers, because they, black directors and casts and writers have been making films since D.W. Griffith. It's yeah. just they it's just that they weren't known. Um, and now only now are they starting to get their due. So we will try to figure out a way to approach what is has become the central issue of American culture these days. So I'm looking forward to to uh, you know uh, to opening my own eyes and maybe opening some of our audience's ears about that. Any other thoughts on this episode, guys, or uh, any last comments? Uh, I'm going to watch Notorious and North by North West again because of the great villains in them. And I just watched them again recently. <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? Listen, there's a reason this is our, out of 22 episodes, this is our third Hitchcock episode. Not for nothing, as we say in Staten Island. So right. I will say, I will assert as ever that uh, Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production. We want to thank Melissa Cabot for her technical assistance, especially in recently getting us on Spotify. 
which we are in also on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and SoundCloud as well. We want to thank Mama Sue for the space. We want to thank and, uh, and the internet for the space because we're doing it on Zoom, of course. Uh, Gabby for our awesome logo. Uh, please check out our website, www.vintagesand.com. So happy watching. Wash your hands, please, everybody. Stay the F indoors. And hopefully indoors, your favorite movies will always be streaming.